Hello, everyone. Welcome to the second episode of the Aces Audio Podcast. I'm your host, Chad T. Grant. And as we discussed last time on the inaugural episode, um, the goal of the Aces Audio is to talk to people that are aces in their field. Um, we have enlightened conversations um, around a variety of topics. Um, where our business, uh, Natasha and I are business anabolic aces. We focus primarily on functional health, but on this podcast, uh, we like to explore a variety of topics, kind of keep the, the lens a little bit wider. So discuss things like relationships, uh, business, politics, sexuality, um, all kinds of interesting talk- topics. So to that point today uh, on the show, my second guest is none other than uh, the infamous Natasha Hawthorne. Uh, my partner in crime, life, uh, personal and professional. Um, uh, so we're, we're here today to discuss her story, um, kind of her background, um, her passions, what she, uh, is an ace at in life. Um, so welcome to the show, Natasha. Thank you, my love. (laughs) Hi, everybody. (laughs) Nice to be here on the podcast with all of you. Great. We're glad to have you here. And I'm sure everyone is dying to hear your very interesting story. Um, Just for some backstory, Natasha and I have known each other for five years. Uh, It's been a very, very intense and action packed five years. (laughs) So I've had the the utmost pleasure of learning a lot about Natasha. And um, today I kind of wanted to kind of dive in, kind of go over a roughly chronological kind of journey of her story. Because I think she has a very intriguing story of um, how she immigrated to this country, her journey through um, her career professionally as a, a research chemist and kind of in the scientific world, um, and then, you know, journey through kind of like the family suburban lifestyle and kind of rediscovering herself, starting a business, um, exploring different relationship structures, and then kind of hanging out with a uh, uh, swaggering cowboy character like myself getting in all sorts of trouble so uh it's a pretty interesting tale so that's kind of the rough the rough trajectory that we're going to take today so um and the overall kind of theme uh for the show uh the thing the the term that i think describes natasha and her what is she an ace at the most um the term that i i like to use the most and she she prefers for herself i believe she can elaborate on is heart-driven light goddess. So why don't we start off with that? Why don't we start off with what is that, where did that term come from and what does it mean to you um, to be a heart-driven light goddess, Natasha? Yeah, thanks for asking. Um, So (laughs) it's a really interesting uh, kind of thing that happened. I met a person on Facebook through a mutual friend, never met this guy uh, in real life, but after a couple of conversations like very brief messages that we exchanged he sent me a message back that said something like if you are the hard driven light goddess that I know you are blah 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 and I was like whoa where did that come from and so I sat with that term for probably about a year and you know it kind of floated in and out of my consciousness until recently um, with starting a new meditation technique and making that a regular practice, regular part of my life, I kind of integrated that into my being. And um, kind of what that means to me is someone who leads with light and love. 
and I, I picture, I have an image of what it looks like uh, in my head. If there's an artist out there who would like to paint that for me, I can describe to you in detail what that looks like. And I would love to get a painting of that because I think that would look really cool. Um, but it's, you know, like light shining from my heart and uh, leading with love. And... <clears throat> I'm not saying that I'm perfect at this, but it is something that I definitely try to embody every day and lead with light and love. And that's what that means to me. Yeah. And I, I really, I like that, um, that framework or paradigm or what you will with that. Um, that this could, that could just kind of image of, um, light kind of literally as you've described it to me in the past, um, as kind of like emanating or shining out from your chest and, um, yeah, I think that that's a really beautiful image. Um, I kind of use kind of a similar imagery sometimes with myself or sometimes like in, in uh, like therapy, for example, working, working with that kind of similar image of light, either like shining down from like higher dimensions or something as my therapist likes to say it, um, uh, higher, higher vibrational energy coming down as light, like kind of through the top of the head, but then, you know, kind of also can emanate out, like sometimes like shooting out of fingertips, like kind of like lightning or like in, in this case, like shooting out of the chest as if like all this kind of higher dimensional um, positive energy is is literally emanating from your soul, basically. I guess that's kind of how I think of it at the heart and the soul. Um, does that kind of sound right? Yeah, yeah. That's pretty much how I see it. It comes straight out of my heart and that's that's my light, my energy, my love. And yeah, it's just that's what I want to put out into the world. Awesome. Uh, that's a good thing. And I really appreciate that. Um, in all of the variety of relationships that we have together, um, as a, as a friend once told us, we, Natasha and I have what, uh, we affectionately refer to as the Olympics of relationships, uh, <laughs> where we have started as, um, and we'll kind of get into this a little bit deeper later, but we actually started in, um, an open relationship. We reached in open relationships with our, our former, uh, spouses, uh, both, um, our divorce now, but when we first met, we were, we're both, uh, dating in, uh, open relationship contacts. Um, and that was an interesting way to start a relationship, uh, here in the Seattle area. Um, non-monogamy and ethical non-monogamy is, um, starting to take root, I would say. Um, but it's gaining traction, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, it's a journey Natasha and I've been on together, uh, for about five years now. And, um, yeah, it's a, it's a definitely an interesting way to um, build a relationship. So we started in that context, and then eventually we became um, each other's primary partner, uh, cohabit with each other, blended our families together, raised kids together, and then actually started a business together, which is how a lot of you might know us uh, uh, nowadays uh, with Anabolic Aces Health Consulting. So we kind of do all the relationships. So we're no strangers to um, communication, personal growth, um, and doing creative projects such as this, host uh, having a podcast episode together um, right after making coffee and breakfast in our kitchen. That's how we roll. Um, but I mean, you know what that does is it forces us to stay sharp. It forces us to really kind of own our shit um, and be accountable to ourselves, to each other, and to everyone else in our lives. Like our, our, our like you know, our family, our friends, and our all of our clients and uh, business contacts that really really does force a level of like personal accountability that is pretty awesome when it comes right down to it and kind of shedding off the, the skin of like, you know, like a snake skin, kind of like the old habits and beliefs and mindsets that don't really fit with 
kind of honestly a pretty badass trajectory trajectory of life that we've chosen here to try to to tackle and honestly i think we're doing a pretty kick-ass job in my opinion yeah is that like to say between all the collective different types of relationships that we have we have nowhere left to hide (laughs) there's no room left for hiding you've got to show up you've got to be your best self put your best foot forward and when you don't you're gonna get called out on it because there's nowhere left to hide basically yes so We'll get a little more into that um, journey perhaps a little bit later. Um, I, I wanted to start out today, this is super interesting, um, uh, kind of start roughly at the, the beginning, if you will. Um, uh, I wanted to ask you about your, your immigration story, your family's immigration story, kind of like from Russia. Uh, Natasha is originally from Russia, so I uh, grew up there until she was about 15 and then immigrated to the, the U.S. And it's a very, to me, a very interesting story of like, um, the difference of the culture there and the family lifestyle and then how it was different um, coming to America. For me, I guess I should preface this by saying since I'm American, even my family is from like uh, Portugal and Italy, but I, I didn't, I've never even been to Portugal. So I, I haven't, I didn't have that experience of growing up in um, kind of my cultural, culturally native country. So to me, it's a very interesting story. So you can tell us about that. Yeah, of course. Well, My story is far from unique. I mean, America is a melting pot of immigrants. And uh, so I'm sure there are lots of stories like this. And my own personal story, um, well, let's see, I was 15 years old when my family immigrated to the United States from Russia. And I was thrown into an American high school in Akron, Ohio, which um, I've I've heard Ohio termed the armpit of America. (laughs) which is uh, funny, which was funny to me. And um, I don't know, I didn't find it the most hospitable place, I suppose, for immigrants, even though we did have a fairly large Russian community in my town. But going to high school as a teenage girl at age 15, not knowing the culture, not knowing much of the language, not really understanding customs and traditions and dress code and things like that, uh, it was a very intense journey. Um, I had three years of high school and it was unpleasant. It was uncomfortable. It was, it pushed me to grow up really fast. It pushed me to learn the language really fast. I quite literally didn't really speak for my first year of high school because I was too afraid to say the wrong word or to make a mistake or whatever. I changed my name from Natasha to Natalie to fit in more, um, (laughs) to make it a little more Americanized. And uh, yeah, it was just, it was all sorts of uncomfortable and uh, I don't really have very good memories of high school, but um, I do appreciate how fast it pushed me to grow and learn the language. So by the time I got to um, college, I was fairly proficient with the English language. So I decided to uh, major in chemistry because my high school teacher, my high school chemistry teacher was awesome and uh, he kind of... Uh, he was the one who catalyzed my love for chemistry. So I went to Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, Ohio. And no, it's not a military school. Sometimes people ask. <laughs> it has nothing to do with military. It was a very nerdy science and engineering school. And um, that was an interesting journey in itself, as you know, pretty much probably most college um, years are interesting for most people. My school was... Uh, interestingly slanted there were about four boys three or four boys for every one girl so that was um 
that was something else. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I was curious to, to know, or maybe you can tell the listeners more about this because I've, I've heard about uh, some of this myself, but um, kind of how was the experience um, like, I guess, like for your parents, for example, coming to like kind of maybe like speak to like the, the pressures um, for them. Like what, what are the reasons they wanted to move? from Russia to America in terms of like, maybe like, you know, financial, political pressures. And then how did that relate to, um, you know, maybe like, like say the career choices they made or the ones that they were, um, kind of like nurturing you towards or steering you towards in America, like those kind of like expectations of like, which careers were acceptable careers. And, you know, did that kind of affect or did that influence your decision of which major to go into? Well, simply put, uh, my parents' decision to immigrate out of Russia just uh, had to do with wanting to give their children a better opportunity at life, like a better shot at life. Um, I think my dad was smart enough to see that staying in Russia would just basically limit mine and my brother's opportunities in terms of how far we could go in life, what things we could achieve, um, just kind of the places we could go. And... My dad, being a very uh, driven and strong personality, I suppose he just wouldn't accept that as, you know, a path for life for his children. So he made plans and, uh, you know, worked his magic. And I'm sure it took a lot of work and definitely a lot of courage and vulnerability on my parents' part to leave their entire family, their careers, their homeland, everything they've ever known and move to a different country just to give their kids a better chance at life. And I mean, there's obviously, of course, like a, something in it for them as well. Um, my dad's been able to go on to much bigger and better things that, than he could have ever accomplished in Russia, most likely. Um, but uh, yeah, that was that was their main motivation is to give their kids uh, better opportunities. Okay. Um, and, and did that, so did that play into your decision? Like, was there anything else you considered studying besides chemistry or how did you kind of settle on that? Oh yeah, that's, uh, interesting. Ironically, no, <laughs> um, my parents, pressure from my parents had actually nothing really to do with my, um, choice of career and the, the my major in college. I just, I was honestly uh, really intrigued by studying chemistry in high school. And once I got to college and started taking college level chemistry classes, it was very clear to me that that was my passion in life. Uh, it was, it was my first kind of, you know, seed of professional passion. And uh, I never regretted it. I never looked back. I, uh, you know, didn't end up making chemistry my lifelong career in research like I wanted to, but I'm eternally grateful for the education that I got and um, the jobs that I did have with with that degree and with that education. And I still very much hold on to my passion for chemistry. Um, if you know me personally, you know, I have like a periodic table on my canvas shoes and I have like for my kids when they were smaller, I got them a placemat with a periodic table on it. So it's definitely a passion of mine. And uh, that one um, wasn't really from, you know, pressure from my parents. Yeah. Well, cool. I mean, <clears throat> and my, my own journey was pretty similar with psychology where, um, you know, my parents kind of growing, I grew up in rural California uh, like a small farming town. So, um, 
it would definitely psychology was not something that there was a lot of say career opportunities or a very lucrative career, so to speak, but it was something that I was just very similarly, like when I started taking uh, like, you know, advanced placement psychology classes and in high school, that was where my passion really um, grew from that, where it was like, wow, I really like talking, you know, about how people think and how they interact with each other. And that really just kind of snowballed into, you know, um, it led from, from high school to college, diving into there and like, you know, human sexuality and, um, evolutionary psychology were kind of my two, uh, big things, anthropology. And then, you know, even though I ended up going into a career in automotive where I learned kind of technical skills on that front, kind of diversified my, my portfolio a little bit there. Um, that's what eventually kind of led back around to what we do now as functional health coaches, where it was like that, you know, how do I coach people? How do I influence human behavior? And how do I, how do I let that be driven by kind of the same things that you were basically studying, like, you know, biochemistry. And that's kind of why, um, why I think, you know, we make a really kick-ass team as, um, coaches in this business. And, um, you know, we're kind of researchers, like, you know, perhaps in, in a different way. Now we research, um, we're not doing say primary direct research in a lab, um, or in that kind of a context, but we, we do more like, uh, a higher level of research where we're like cultivating information books, you know, podcasts like this, uh, just searching for nuggets and combining them together into our own kind of, uh, secret sauce, if you will. So, um, but, um, so yeah, uh, I was curious um, for you to tell us more about your, like your specific, um, your medicinal chemistry research jobs that you had and kind of like, um, kind of walk us through like what, how, you know, what those jobs were, what kind of companies did you work for? What kind of products did you work on? And maybe kind of how did that, you know, kind of the insider's view now that we work in kind of alternative quote unquote alternative health, I would call it the real health basically, which is functional, functional medicine arena. Um, how was it working inside, um, kind of the, you know, the, I don't want to say the evil empire, but like, uh, you know, the pharmaceutical industry on the inside, how, how was that experience for you? Yeah. The pharmaceutical industry is an interesting place. Um, because I feel like having worked in a research lab in that industry, there's so many different levels, uh, to that industry and levels of kind of awareness of what's kind of going on in the bigger picture. Um, having been inside it and then having stepped outside of the pharmaceutical industry and looking at it from a kind of a different perspective, like a complete 180 flip, I can see how from, you know, the kind of higher level executives and uh, marketing and that sort of thing, it's purely profit driven um, without really much regard for human safety and human health. And however, if you go down the levels of uh, kind of the, the, the ladder of the company and the industry itself in the larger sense, by the time you get down to the researcher level with uh, the chemists in the lab, which I was one of, I was fortunate enough to work for um, a couple, mostly notably one pharmaceutical company that I where I absolutely loved my job and I loved my coworkers. I loved the company. I loved their mission and the whole thing. Um, but by the time you get down to the researcher level, the people working in the lab, they're amazing people. They're super smart, brilliant scientists. They have a mission and they believe in the mission wholeheartedly. And I was one of them, which is why I can speak to this. When I was working on um, 
research projects, for example, uh, discovering uh, potential new drugs f to treat, say, COPD was the project that I worked on, chronic ob obstructive pulmonary disease. We're working on designing a small molecule to treat that disease. Um, every day at the lab was exciting. It was interesting and it was amazing. And I loved, loved, loved my job. And uh, at the same time, while I sat on like meetings with the clinical team and heard little bits about what was happening in clinical trials and kind of like, you know, farther up the chain from the lab, it wasn't really part of my daily life. It wasn't really part of my kind of field of uh, thinking. It wasn't really in my consciousness. So as a researcher in the lab, I was just concerned with making the best possible small molecule. And that was super duper exciting. <laughs> Um, and it wasn't until I um, lost that job through a merger and acquisition, which is what commonly happens in the biotech and pharmaceutical industry. All of us got laid off at this company. And um, it took me years to kind of gain a different perspective and a wider zoom on what was going on in that industry to realize that the um, small molecule drugs that we were designing they aren't really actually benefiting people in the way that I believed that they were at that time. It's, you know, from what we've learned in kind of the functional medicine uh, field recently is pretty much all synthetic small molecule drugs are disruptive to the human body. While they might correct some kind of imbalance or malfunction or dysfunction, on a uh, very much like zoomed in micro level, when you zoom out to the whole body, they are universally all disruptive. So that was a very different um, shift in perspective for me. And I'm super, super grateful that I had that experience working in a research lab. Yeah, that's <clears throat> awesome to hear that insight. And I think there's like several things that I kind of want to touch on from, from that. Um, I guess, first of all, is, is kind of like, I really, I really appreciate that. Um, discussion around kind of like the motivation of people and like when you look at kind of different different players and different um, positions in a, in a company I think that that's super super uh, relevant and it, it, this comes into play also with um, you know kind of like other areas of healthcare like for example like um, conventional medicine doctors working in uh, kind of like the health insurance model I feel is like a very similar uh, a very similar um, pattern where each individual doctor is probably very similar. Like they're highly motivated. They're really passionate. They get into that to help people. Um, exactly. And they're, they're very much, you know, wanting to do their best work. Um, but at the same time, when you look at both industries uh, there, which are kind of the two, um, kind of the two branches of the conventional health model would be like the pharmaceutical industry and um like the health insurance model and then the doctors are doctors and the researchers are kind of both like employees of their model if you really look at it accurately like it's kind of looked at as like well i'm an independent doctor in my own practice but not really right if you're if you're working within the insurance model you have corporations basically dictating what your toolkit is which is the pharmaceutical companies and what treatment the whole course of your treatment is dictated by the expectations that the insurance company is going to pay for that and that that's a really challenging place, I think, to to really work in um, from like from my perspective, right? If you're kind of like boxed into <clears throat> you're researching what people tell you to research. And if you're a doctor, you're basically prescribing and treating the way that you're within the lane lines. And those can be, I think, from what I've experienced on 
on my side as a, as a client of that and also working professionally in the site, the psychology and uh, psych side of that, um, it can be pretty limiting. Yeah, I can see how uh, what you're saying is it can be, you know, kind of frustrating or limiting to work as an employee within either one of those models. Um, I think that in order for that to be any level of frustrating and anything other than interesting and exciting, it does require a wider zoom level and kind of like a opening up your mindset to see the bigger picture because what I'm saying is when I was an employee at a pharmaceutical company, um, I didn't have a wide Zoom level. Uh, I was very much just kind of focused on my work and on my research. And um, I didn't really take the time or maybe I didn't have the tools. I didn't have the perspective to zoom out and look at the bigger picture. And so it's kind of like when they say ignorance is bliss, you know, um, I was very, very happy in my job and I believed in my mission and um, I didn't really take the time to look at what was going on at kind of like the higher level in the company. And um, I almost feel like I did that on purpose so that I wouldn't sabotage my job. <laughs> um, because, yeah, my job provided me meaning in life. It was, it was my source of significance, my source of intellectual stimulation, my source of you know, my way to contribute to the world. And I felt very, very strongly and very passionate about it. So um, seeing things from a different perspective would require actively changing your perspective. And uh, I feel like it's not that people aren't capable of doing that or aren't actually... I feel like they're not doing it for a reason. <laughs> no, that's what I was going right. to say. It was what I was going to, the next thing I was going to come back to was kind of like the reason why, like even like, you know, obviously you and I are in very much in alignment, kind of our whole functional medicine crew being alignment of like, you know, essentially patenting, um, the way that the, the drug patenting process works because by default, I read a really cool article about this on, uh, I think green med info, um, about, like the it's basically once you start out from the position that the only substances you can patent and thereby make you know exponentially higher profits on um through like a capitalist business model if those are only small molecule yep. drugs there's synthetic drugs you're kind of the whole system is now being back it back ended into that's the primary standard of care where in reality that's a giant from our perspective mismatch between um, you know, if you're trying to generate health at the systemic level, but you're basically forced to only, um, make profit off of, and I had an interesting topic with this, uh, discussion about this with a friend the other day about kind of capitalist, uh, incentivization of like, if you're basically forcing then companies to be incentivized only by that method. And you can't say, for example, sell like a, a food product, like, you know, like turmeric, for example, has tons and tons of research on, you know, curcumin and inflammation and, you know down regulating like you know inflammatory cytokines and all these all this research that's out there if you search on pubmed it's just like light up like a christmas tree about turmeric but you can't patent turmeric so you can only make x amount you can make profit off it but it's not going to be like you know fifty thousand percent profit margin or whatever you might be able to sell like you know cancer drug and you're selling it for you know five grand a dose or something like that and you're basically then kind of forcing the model to be less efficient and once you start operating from that standpoint then you get what i what i think is the the largest root cause of kind of the bloated failing american healthcare system where you're you're it's more about a lot more about money than health the health keeps getting worse of the people the profits keep getting up 
And um, I mean, long story short, that's why <laughs> uh, we're kind of Natasha and I are preaching to the choir here, talking to each other here, but um, that's why we're not in that model anymore. So uh, maybe like, you know, let's, if you, do you have anything more to add on that? Or? Yeah, I was just going to add one last thing that um, it took me getting uh, laid off from my job and then years of uh, not working in the pharmaceutical industry before I was able to completely flip my mindset on uh, what was going on in the pharmaceutical industry and basically abandon the whole like philosophy of um, synthetic drugs. And uh, that's what I'm saying. Like if I had stayed within that industry, I don't know that I would have ever drifted towards functional medicine. It's possible that I would have, but um, I don't know. It took me some time and distance away from that industry to be able to see things from from a functional medicine perspective and to kind of trend more towards uh, natural medicine, natural compounds. Awesome. And uh, that kind of leads into <clears throat> kind of the next uh, next topic I wanted to kind of go into was leading into that kind of that period of your life transitioning out of that to oh, yeah. lead into um, kind of the next segment of your life, which kind of involved, you know, uh, starting your family, um, having kids, um, that kind of whole period of life. Um, and then also kind of, you know, how did that go in the suburbs and then kind of like trying to redefine your kind of meaning and purpose in life, that whole, that whole kind of journey. Yeah, that was quite a, um, different chapter of my life. Um, getting laid off from my job in the pharmaceutical industry, I was, um, pregnant with my second baby. So I decided to stay home and raise the kids and that was pretty much a complete 180 from working as a researcher in a chemistry lab, going to singing the ABCs and changing diapers with my babies. And um, yeah, so that was uh, very much a struggle for me. I never wanted to be a stay-at-home mom. Um, it was never my intention. I did always want to have kids, but I always planned to work while I had kids. So kind of losing my job and losing my purpose, losing the meaning in my life uh, in that sense forced me to, um, well, bond more with my kids, of course, but at the same time, try to find uh, meaning in life from a different perspective. And that took me a while. Again, I was kind of I did feel like I was, you know, intellectually and kind of philosophically in limbo for quite a few years until I found something else that was uh, meaningful to me. I, for a while, considered changing careers and going back to school. And I had an idea du jour for about a year where like pretty much every single day or every week, I had a new idea of what I wanted to be. I considered going to like engineering school, to law school, to you know, become, uh, I can't even remember all the things, like different fields of chemistry that didn't involve lab jobs, um, IP lawyer, like all sorts of things were considered. And uh, in the end, I didn't really end up doing any of those things. And uh, I'm pretty glad I didn't, um, just because of, you know, this, <laughs> that path led me to here to where I am now. But um, that was definitely a struggle. I had this internal battle with myself about what do I want to be? I suddenly found myself in my early 30s feeling like a kid again where like, I don't know what I want to be when I grow up. <laughs> like I had my career, I had my passion and then I lost it and 
it didn't seem to me a viable choice to go back to the same career for just reasons of, you know, where I live and availability of jobs and um, income potential and kids and that sort of thing. So where that left me was um, being a stay-at-home mom in uh, suburbia, in kind of outside of Seattle, in a, you know, via very suburban neighborhood surrounded by other stay-at-home parents. And uh, we'd get together and talk about kids and what color their poop was and what my breast milk smelled like. And <laughs> so it was a very, very different level of conversation than uh, where I had come from working as a medicinal chemist. So yeah, that was, that was quite a change. Yeah, sounds like <clears throat> a very abrupt one. I mean, I also, um, through my kind of career, changes um when i was you know in the automotive career and took me two or three uh, tries of switching jobs and quitting jobs to uh, try to figure out what i wanted to do in health it was kind of very similar i was like going back to the drawing board i thought about doing things like you know working in a butcher shop or making knives or um you know various forms of just kind of what what could i do what could what would be fun or interesting for me to do um, in the world, maybe I can just do something simple, like be like a forest ranger and like be out in the woods or just, you know, chill out, um, not be so kind of in the, in the zoo, if you will. And then I kind of had to go through this journey of introspection to be like, you know, okay, am I going to stay in the zoo or not? Basically, am I going to kind of, uh, kind of almost like in the army where like, you know, there's people down, am I going to come back and <laughs> take everyone with me or am I just going to take off from myself? And I was like, ah, all right, fine. I'll come back and help everybody else. <laughs> Not just to take off into the woods with a machete and eat coconuts all day and stuff. So here I am, guys, fighting for you guys all the time. So, um, yeah, can you can you tell us a little bit more during that period um, how you came to um, your like? I mean, the the professional route that you did end up taking, one of them was like your your Pilates instruction, um, that kind of course. But then also, how did that kind of parlay into things like pole dance and aerial arts? And then what did that have effects not only, you know, maybe far more beyond just like professionally, um, but also into your like personal life, sexuality, all that kind of stuff? Yeah, so among many things that I considered during uh, my time of stay, staying at home with my kids when they were babies, was um, fitness instruction. Fitness has always been part of my life. It's always been very important to me. I've always been an active person and just kind of always resonated with that. So I started going to a Pilates class and decided, you know what, I can teach this better than most of these other Pilates teachers at my local gym. So um, I did a teacher certification that took me a couple of years to complete with the babies at home and everything. And um, during that time was when I discovered a, a local studio that was offering um, aerial classes. And I was like, oh, what's that? And at about the same time, I found a Groupon for a pole dance class. <laughs> People ask me how I got into pole dance. And I always say, oh, how all good things used to start with a Groupon. <laughs> I don't know if that's still the case or not, but that's how it started for me about six or seven years ago. Um, I found a group on to both the uh, pole dance studio and the aerial arts studio. And uh, I started going, fell in love with the arts, fell in love with my coaches, and uh, just kind of never really looked back. And so um, that launched me into this whole world of 
performance, circus arts, um, dance, uh, kind of different levels and expressions of fitness that I never even kind of really realized that I could be a part of. I was always fascinated with uh, circus, even as a little kid. My parents used to take me to circus. We had a permanent one in my city in Russia, and I loved it. And I just, you know, it it was such a far off dream that I could be anywhere near, um, that kind of level of, uh, performers. And, uh, yeah, lo and behold, through, you know, years and years of, um, training here locally in the Seattle area, I have eventually found myself on stages as a performer, not at the circus level. I was never in Cirque du Soleil or anything like that, but, um, I did train enough to perform on various stages in front of audiences and participate in competitions. Um, I think I've done four pole dance competitions so far and, for the last couple of years, every year I keep telling myself, okay, this will be my last one. I'm not going to compete next year. And then the next competition comes around. Like, Who am I kidding? Yeah, I'm going to compete. <laughs> I think I said the same thing last year. And this year's competition is coming up in November. Who am I kidding? I'm definitely going to compete. <laughs> yeah. And um, <clears throat> I can definitely uh, throw in my testimonial of uh, Natasha's uh, teaching and coaching skills. Um, in the fitness industry specifically with, uh, you know, taking her Pilates classes and, uh, been an observer. I don't think I've ever perhaps officially taken one of her pole classes, <laughs> but she's have. taught me a few things with that. And also, yeah. um, been a patient instructor for, uh, aerial, uh, for actually, yeah, I have taken one of her aerial arts classes. She's, uh, she, she still teaches, uh, beginner pole classes, uh, in yeah. the home studio here at, out of our, our home, uh, home anabolic aces HQ here, um, with our, home office where we're recording this podcast, uh, coach clients and run our empire, digital empire. And then also, uh, she teaches beginner pole classes in person in real life, uh, here as well. But she's, she's an amazingly supportive, um, and very energetic and warm coach. Like we took a, a personality disc personality course, um, about a year ago now, I think where it was talking about the different personality types where the disc stands for like D's kind of like driven, decisive eyes, more of like social, um, kind of like gregarious, like kind of outgoing, uh, people connecting thing. S is like supporting and stable and C's like kind of cautious and calculating. Um, calculating type of a thing. Natasha is a very high S personality, which is like a supportive role. And it really shows in her, her coaching and her, her teaching where, um, she, you know, where for me, for example, as in the, the nice book into that, I'm a super, super strong D like off the charts, D driven, like smashing a hole in the universe. Um, she's kind of the one coming back around, picking up the pieces and serving everyone some tea and some treats, um, <laughs> on the backside of that. So it's a, it's a nice experience. So like coaching, I might kind of be the one to kind of like, you know, like drop the bullet points and do all the kind of logic side, you know, I'm learning actually Natasha has taught me a lot, um, how to be more, um, free flowing and more, uh, you know, spontaneous and playful. And she reminds me to do that and balances out me really well, which is why we work really good as a team and all the ways, um, but go with the flow, man. Yeah. Flowy. (laughs) Um, so yeah, I can, I can testify that, that she's a very, very excellent coach her all of her you know all the girls in her pole class really love the class and they can't they can't wait to come back um every time um so speaking along those lines um maybe this be a good time to kind of segue into the um in addition to kind of the the professional stuff um the the competitions and um 
you know, all that kind of stuff with the various fitness things and aerial um, performances and things. Um, how did how did that work as kind of a parallel journey or like a, a catalyst for um, your sexuality kind of uh, from the like, say, the the archetype of like the brown haired suburban mom into the kind of uh, more self-actualized uh, what was that poem we heard the other day on the Aubrey Marcus's podcast like the wild, wild woman, woman. Um, with the pink hair and the the white tights and the wagon booty type of a uh, <laughs> persona like which I would I would argue personally is inside every woman um, just the degree of awareness that they may or may not have it and which is why I kind of like really appreciate that about you so how did that how did that go that journey for you yeah, so um, it's interesting you use the archetype of suburban brown hair mom because I literally was that mom. I had brown hair, I had two kids on my hips, one on each hip, pushing a stroller and like whatever. And um, through discovering, um, mostly I have to credit pole dance, I think, for this. When I started attending regularly um, a pole dance studio, what uh, my pole teacher started cultivating in class is um, expression of femininity and you can kind of take that to you know whichever like path fits you best um, some people take that all the way to kind of you know very open and expressive and um, explicit sexuality like you might see at a strip club and some people take it to a very kind of a gentle more sensual but even barely sensual place with just dance um, and kind of everything in between so there's like the full spectrum of um, expression that you can use pole dance for and for me personally I found my own niche where um, I'm not you know very like explicit with my sexuality in the pole studio but I definitely enjoy expressing it to a much higher degree than I used to when I was um, just a brown-haired suburban stay-at-home mom, <laughs> I kind of transformed myself. I worked on myself over years, and um, I ended up with, you know, pink, blue, purple hair, whatever. Currently, it's pink. You can look me up uh, on social media, and you'll see my hair is currently bright pink, and um, I love it that way. It's part of my expression of who I am. Um, I went through a phase of wearing like super colorful clothes and all of that was kind of a part of my self-discovery as an adult and as a woman. Um, losing that um, research career and, you know, having to kind of sit with myself was a forcing function for me to rediscover myself and pole dance was definitely instrumental in that. Um, aerial arts as well to some extent, I kind of opened my eyes to the whole world of circus and um, acro, acrobatic arts and things like that, which I really, really enjoy. And I love and appreciate that community. And um, the pole dance community, uh, for me, was instrumental in discovering my sensuality and sexuality and my femininity and my kind of, how do I express my femininity as a woman? And that all um, developed in the pole studio on that pole on that dance floor that's where it was born for me and uh, that's something that I really really love and appreciate about the pole dance community it's very diverse it's open to everybody there's you know kind of spans the whole spectrum of human um, gender sexuality sensuality expression um, colors you know shapes and sizes and the whole thing um, 
so I really appreciate being part of that community and uh, that's kind of what I try to cultivate in my studio I, I I love encouraging my students to take this to their comfort level and everyone has a different comfort level everyone has a different kind of goal where they want to get even if you don't know where your goal is that's okay just play around with it and explore and you never know where, where you might end up. Like, I didn't really see myself ever becoming a pole dance competitor. But there I am, you know, once a year on the stage, <laughs> expressing my uh, my physical strength, my body, my femininity and sensuality, and uh, cultivating my dance skills, which still have a long way to go, but I'm loving it. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Um, and <clears throat> again I can I've witnessed um a lot of the the kind of the the pole dance world uh if you will and a lot of these different things and I those, that's something that I find uh I also really see the value and I haven't experienced it um as like firsthand directly but um I kind of seen that and like tried to to basically make analogous things for myself um in other areas like for for me perhaps like the way that it, like seeing how you did that journey really inspired me to kind of look at like, Hey, what's my version of that kind of, you know, um, I mean, there's definitely men in the pole dance world. I think most of them are gay, but, um, personally from like a more kind of, uh, you know, farther on the like heteronormative side of the spectrum. Um, you know, since I'm, I'm not bisexual myself, uh, or, or gay. Um, it's like that kind of energy, the, the kind of the, the glitter and, and all that. It is, it, it's a great thing. It's wonderful. The feminine energy, but I was like, what do I do, uh, for myself kind of as more of like a, a cowboy, like, uh, to, to do that. So to me, it's, it's been more things like, uh, really diving deeper into like music. Like I was just this last weekend making a, a blues playlist of like rock guitar on blues guitar on, on Spotify or learning how to play electric guitar or taking up vocals and singing or, archery or all these different kind of ways to express my masculinity. But I think what really helped me is, is seeing that, um, the way that, that your community through circus and, and the pole communities and aerial communities, that there was this very, um, very intentional safe space that's cultivated and that all the teachers, um, like they worked really hard to cultivate that sense of safety. Hells um, yeah. Yeah. Um, but that's a very important thing where a lot of Absolutely. other, kind of say hobbies and things like our sports or things, for example, that it's not really the same thing. It's more like you might be moving your body or having community, which is all great, but that kind of it really watching, you know, watching uh, a lot of these women um, going through that. It's really a journey of vulnerability is really what I think it is like being in the pole studio. What I've seen, um, it really is kind of more of a transformative like process. That's very cathartic of like finding yourself as a human being, which I think is, is really cool and profound. I don't think there's, you know, a lot, I, I guess that's why to me, music is pretty similar where it's like, it's like a vulnerability to get up on a stage and sing. That's kind of the closest thing for me that I've done. And actually we've done <laughs> probably on YouTube somewhere. You can find this on our, on our anabolic aces, YouTube channel. You probably find some examples of, you know, me singing on there, or maybe, you know, I don't know if we have a video of us, but uh, Natasha and I have done some joint performances where she was doing pole and I've sang. And I think that's kind of the closest it's gotten to, to that. Um, but I mean, to me, even polls kind of like, personally, I think it's even a, a higher level of vulnerability because it, it involves like literally taking your clothes off. It involves expressing, um, you know, sexuality, which is kind of a, especially in America, a pretty taboo thing in our puritanical culture. So, um, 
I really yeah. appreciate that. Yeah. Million percent, yes. Um, there have been so many tears left on the floors of pole dance studios where I've been <clears throat> privileged to attend classes and be in that company. Uh, both mine and other students' tears and the pole teachers' tears. And the, yeah, the sense of community is definitely very strong. And it it wouldn't survive if we were not supportive. <clears throat> and that's the thing. It, uh, people who tend to gravitate towards uh, pole dance and aerial arts uh, probably are already open-minded and supportive. And if they're not, they become open-minded and supportive. And if they can't, then they don't last in that, in the, in that um, community. So it's, I suppose it's a self-selective, self-selecting community, but it's, all, but it's also uh, giving people an opportunity to forge themselves into like um, more open-minded and supportive people and to explore their own um, deeper vulnerability because yeah like what you're saying when you show up to a pole dance studio you literally take your clothes off down to just you know like booty shorts and a bra top and um, if you're a dude just down to the booty shorts and that's it and the rest of you is exposed quite literally um, which is a forcing function to kind of expose your soul your mindset and um, get support and kind of cultivate a that sense of community and discover who you are and yeah it's a beautiful thing it's a beautiful thing I'm I'm I feel very privileged to watch my um, own students go through their own journeys it's it's a gift yeah it's wonderful and um I did want to kind of touch on also the kind of overlap that I've you know we both experienced of um you know that the pole um pole aerial kind of circus community um, also with kind of like the openness and vulnerability that with like crossover, especially in the Seattle area here with, um, you know, ethical non-monogamy, like we touched on before and kind of like an openness to things in general where, um, you know, I think it's fair to say that there is a decent amount of overlap between those communities. And I've always kind of talked about that of where I consider kind of like an openness and willingness to look, uh, inside and be introspective and be vulnerable about kind of all the things inside one soul, including one sexuality, um, it's kind of like an openness as a person and human being in general. And, um, I kind of noticed that for me personally, um, you know, like doing things like throughout, like, you know, some of this, uh, Natasha and I's journeys overlap together with doing things, um, to cultivate and open up our sexuality, doing things like, you know, attending like, you know, adult play parties, things like that, where it's like, okay, or even encouraged to be, you know, naked or even sexual around other people. And, you know, the first time I was in those environments, it was really interesting because it felt like the odd the so word contrary to the norm. Well, that but basically the the word that I always stands out to me when I think about that is is the word therapeutic, where it was like the ability as soon as I realized like I can take and it reminded me of this when you said like you, you're exposed and vulnerable and you take your clothes off to me when I was able to kind of take literally all my clothes off and just be like, that was okay. It was like, wait, the cops aren't going to come. Like no one's going to arrest me. <laughs> it was an interesting experience because yeah. I realized like, you know, until my thirties, I hadn't ex ever experienced that. I had never been in public without my clothes on. And it's weird that it was like, it felt like human basically. And I think that's what I find the cool overlap between these things is like that. That's again, like why that I was kind of, you know, bringing around to these points about that with with uh, those communities with pole dance and aerial and all that stuff is that I think all of them have this 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 unifying um, kind of function of digging into like the deeper humanity of like the human soul through art and through connection and since humans were a social species sexuality is kind of a component of that 
social um, bonding agent, kind of like in Sex at Dawn, like Chris Ryan's book, he goes into that a lot as where sexuality and kind of pre-agricultural humanity was a lot more of like a very fluid social bonding experience between, you know, between the sexes or even in same sexes and things like that. It was all this, this totally different thing than we have as this very kind of like um, industrialized um, kind of like capitalist supporting uh, entity of, you know, uh, litigious monogamy, basically that we're all trying to function. And, and, you know, seeing how different people in different communities are, are actively working on like extraditing themselves from that, I think is really interesting. And I've, I've experienced a lot of, you know, deep vulnerability and transformations around that as well. So, um, I appreciate you kind of sharing that story. Yeah, definitely. And I completely agree with everything you're saying. Um, and you know, I've, I've had all of those experiences myself where, you know, it's just, what does it actually mean to just be human and to expose your body? Like, you know, do you, how do you actually truly feel? Do you feel comfortable in your own skin? And that's, that's a very deep vulnerability to explore for each person for themselves individually, uh, for sure. Yeah. Awesome. And, uh, that's a great segue into, um, our next and, you know, I think probably our last, uh, discussion topic for the day as we're, uh, winding close to an hour here. Um, was to be kind of take everyone through, and this kind of, you know, has, has gone on through the rest of the story too, but your journey, your 20 year journey of back pain and how that kind of related to, um, the, the process of, you know, how did that feel along the way? Like what were the various stages of your mindset when you were say like, you know, more of the traditional model, even in like the pharmaceutical industry, kind of at the peak of that. And then your kind of thought process through like, Hey, there might be you know, who, what did you try? What, what doctors did you go to? What did you try? And what kind of spurred you to think there might be a different way to solve this problem? Perhaps. Man, oh man, back pain. How many of you guys can relate to back pain? Um, probably if I could see the audience, I would see several hands go up, uh, or good percentage of hands go up. Um, yeah, I started experiencing back pain when I was a kid. I was like 15 or 16 or something. And Nobody really knew why. Nobody could ever really give me an answer. I was, you know, really thin. I was fit. I ate pretty well for all I knew at that time. And, uh, you know, any kind of healthcare professional that I ever went to was, for the most part, scratching their heads. And they're like, yeah, I don't really know why you have back pain. And, you know, I would, uh, you know, throughout the years... <clears throat> get um, kind of allopathic temporary relief from things like acupuncture and osteopathic adjustments, um, massage, that kind of thing. And I never experienced lasting relief. Um, I even tried a steroid injection that was supposed to, you know, bring me pain relief for like two years. I experienced it for about three months, maybe. And that was kind of euphoric, actually, to not feel pain for like three months. But um, and then it was right back to pain because Again, that's not really a permanent solution. It was just kind of like a slap on a Band-Aid um, kind of thing. But um, yeah, it was uh, as I was getting older and suffering with uh, more and more intense back pain, I was getting growing increasingly more and more frustrated. I kept going to health professional after health professional, trying desperately to find answers until um, I literally gave up trying to find answers. I read a book uh, that basically talked about the um, emotional and mental connection between, well, your 
the connection between your emotions and your physical pain as in how your stuck emotions can manifest as physical pain and that was actually quite helpful um so I kind of started working on my own mindset and my perception of pain my feelings about the pain and that sort of thing and uh honestly after like it had been a couple decades probably by then of living with back pain it was up to that point the most effective solution that I had found so I literally gave up trying to go to doctors to get answers on uh, what was causing my back pain and how to relieve it. Um, The last professional I believe I saw was an orthopedic surgeon who luckily told me I was not a good candidate for surgery, so I didn't have surgery. And then um, that was it. Then was the book. And I was like, okay, screw this. I'm just going to live with pain. I'm going to accept it, but I'm going to just kind of laugh it off which uh, worked, actually. Your mind is a very powerful tool and you can manifest a lot of things, um, both positive and negative. Uh, So that kind of continued and I, I pushed through the pain, I laughed through it. Meanwhile, I was, you know, still suffering. It was, it was, hurting me to bend over the sink to brush my teeth. Um, I had little kids and my back would hurt when I try to pick them up. And kind of all of that contributed to my feeling like um, inadequate mother, like a human that like, what is wrong with me? Like, why why me kind of, you know what I mean? Like, why do I deserve this? I, I feel like I'm doing everything right. I'm in good shape. I work out. I eat pretty well. Um, you know, I have a good social life. Why me? Why am I suffering with back pain? And uh, anyways, uh, long story short, um, at some point, Chad and I discovered functional diagnostic nutrition, which was our the start of our journey together. Yeah, I just wanted to <clears throat> kind of jump in there before we, we go off on that track was just I wanted to add in a few things of... Um, like, I guess the first thing that jumps out into me with with that story is kind of like this feeling of like, you know, again, again like my journey is pretty similar with like my brain and, you know, brain fog journey, weight loss and kind of feeling like what's going on and like really kind of this big message. Uh, we're just we're working right now building uh, our webinar for our new uh, men's brain health uh, coaching program called the brain power blueprint. And it's the, one of the slides in there is it's just says, it's not your fault. <laughs> Basically that like you, that this confusion of like, why, all why do I have all these health problems? And it like that frustration and that pain of just like literal pain, but also the pain of like, what the F, like, why can I not figure out, you know, I'm doing I feel like I'm doing everything right. And I'm still getting results. And that really just kind of very depressing self defeating cycle of like, you know, why can't I find the answers and how frustrating that is. And that's why we're super passionate about helping, you know, um, basically help people with that in a variety, a variety of ways, but, you know, specifically with this new program and, and the way we feel it can be the most helpful. But, um, I think that, you know, I, I wanted to touch on the mindset part too, because I feel like that, that part, the more that we kind of learn, um, you know, I guess from a higher level to start out with, which is what we'll kind of lead into a minute with uh, FDN and functional diagnostic nutrition is really, I guess that's a good segue into that is that like, you know, looking at everything as a whole in the system, um, is super, super important where I think that that approach of like, you know, going to professional to professional where it's like, you know, one person's looking at say a chiropractor might be looking at like the posture and the nerves. You might go to, you know, the MD who's looking at your blood work and they're like, Oh, well, your cholesterol is high. Then you go to, 
you know, an osteopath and they, they gave you something. Acupuncture says it's all about your, you know, the specific nerve. And then you go, you know what I mean? You just keep bouncing around like a ping pong ball. All these practitioners where no one's zooming out, like in, you know, an FDN, there's this model, which we, our favorite diagram, it's also in our webinar is this metabolic chaos, uh, diagram where it's like, you know, all these hubs basically of the body where there's seven or eight different systems, like the endocrine system and, um, you know, musculoskeletal system, uh, metabol you know, carbon fat metabolism, um, neuron health in the brain, like all these different areas. And if you're kind of zooming in on one or the other, um, it's never really going to be that effective. And I think it's, it really speaks to the inefficiency perhaps of all the other modalities that you were trying really in the conventional model. I think that like, you know, the mindset was even more effective than all of those where like, I would think like maybe you can tell us what your journey was once you found FDN and how kind of quickly things turned around when you started turning the lens to some of those other circles of, you know, what, what were the main ones you were missing out on before and how did it go once you started trying the other ones? Yeah. Well, again, and as always, mindset is key. <laughs> mindset is everything. And when I was um, suffering with back pain and going to different practitioners, I've always had the mindset that there's got to be one answer. There's got to be one solution. There's got to be one health professional who can finally figure out this puzzle and who can tell me why my back is in pain and um, offer me a one kind of a stop solution, one pill for an ill, that sort of thing. Um, and, you know, much of that was from, you know, my working in the pharmaceutical industry and in the biotech industry. And then eventually, you know, like I was saying, later after I lost that job and, you know, was like kind of in limbo, that was when I just gave up hope of finding an answer altogether. And that was my mindset at that time. I was of the mindset that there was no answer. There was no help to be found anywhere for my back pain. That was it. I was destined to live with it forever and I just had to make peace with it. And finding functional diagnostic nutrition gave me a different lens. It offered me like a different perspective to look at what was going on with my back pain, like what Chad, what Chad was just mentioning that uh, metabolic chaos diagram that if you look it up, you can find that online. Um, it did connect all the dots for me. <laughs> that diagram literally connects all the dots. <laughs> it's pretty cool. Uh, and I was like, wait, so, you know, maybe, maybe there is an answer to my back pain. And even still, because I had lived with back pain for so long by then, it had been over 20 years of pretty consistent pain. And if any of you listening live with chronic pain, you know what I'm talking about. You know what it's like to live with chronic pain. It just becomes part of your identity. You kind of assimilate that into your personality. And, uh, you know, it was just for me, it was like, okay, there's no answer. This is just part of my identity. It's part of who I am. And it, because of that mindset, it took me a while to even accept the fact that my back pain could even heal. So that was part of the mindset work that I had to do is to allow in my own mind, my body to heal, because until I did that, it wouldn't be able to heal. So that was my um, journey over a surprisingly short amount of time, you guys, from the time we started um, studying fu functional diagnostic nutrition weren't even practitioners yet, and I was implementing my own protocol. It was about five or six months of my um, adopting my own protocol, my own health protocol, and working on my mindset to even allow the possibility of living pain-free. 
and then it happened. <laughs> it felt like a miracle, but it was not, of course, a miracle. It was, um, it was just part of my journey when my mind was ready to allow my body to be pain-free and my biochemistry lined up and I removed inflammation, inflammatory foods and other um, inputs and reduced inflammation with uh, certain supplements and things like that. That's when healing happens. And it's been about, what, three years, give or take? Um, I can't remember. And honestly, like sometimes every now and, the, and then I get a twinge of pain in my back and I remember what it was like. But most of the time, probably 99% of the time, I'm pain-free now. And um, you know how like you get used to the good thing super easy. I, I don't really remember... Uh, what it was like to be crippled with pain uh, and a lot of that was mindset work and a lot of that was uh, the custom protocols that we work on um, in FDN yeah and I think that that some I think sometimes like when we talk to people about that story sometimes it does get almost in a weird way glossed over the fact that like oh well I think what people assume when they hear things like this it's like if they hear oh someone like reverse their cancer or something oh that's a fluke and that's weird that's a uh, that's an anecdote. That's an anecdotal. It's like, really, bro? Because what it really is, like when you see kind of when you work work in our circle, travel in our circles and work with people like this on a daily basis is you see the power of like when you match up like for reals deep functional lab testing on a systemic level, not just of like, oh, what's the back pain marker? It's two markers on this blood test. No, bullshit. Like it's the whole freaking body. When you look like what Natasha's saying, like at all the inflammation and all the cellular health, all the cells in the body, what's screwed up on them. Maybe they all need, they have vitamin or mineral deficiencies. Maybe they all have hydration issue. Maybe they all have um, an inflammatory cycle that's generated system wide. And when you start coaching up everything non-specifically, miraculously, all these things start getting better. And yes, um, like for example, how we're going to focus on, um, brain fog specifically in our program, if you tune that, you know, those, that testing ever, you know, slightly towards that specific condition, you probably can get even more dialed in, but it's still a very, um, systemic wide approach. It's never like, there's like, oh, you go right this whole, like one pill for an like you're saying, and you might be able to find one practitioner that uses a wide lens. That's our goal basically is to be the one-stop shop practitioners for our ideal clients to, get everything they need from us, but we're not zooming into like, Oh, it's this one pill. Like this one supplement is all you need. You just need turmeric. Like we talked before turmeric's great, but it's not all you're going to need. Even though turmeric does help with inflammation. It's like, what else, you know, like what, maybe you need an enzyme blend. Maybe you need a probiotic. Maybe you need to pull out a few certain foods like Natasha said. And how do you figure that out? Well, that's, that's what we do. That's what our colleagues do. Um, and it kicks ass and we love it. So yeah, this is this uh, protocol, this whole paradigm of functional diagnostic nutrition was uh, kind of my launching pad into the uh, world of functional medicine. And uh, I've never looked back. And um, yeah, this is where the results are, you guys, like if you're um, judging uh, kind of the different modalities and the different um, philosophies by results, this is where the results are. And it's just that's just the truth. That's what it is. So I feel pretty uh, lucky and privileged to be now part of this field as well. Awesome. Well, I think that pretty much wraps up our, our episode today. I think that's a really awesome note to go out on. So is there any kind of final words of, of wisdom of your, your ACEs wisdom, uh, Natasha, you'd like to share with everybody? Um, I think my kind of uh, parting gem is for everybody to 
explore their own vulnerabilities, their own bodies, their own get in touch with your sensuality and your sexuality. And I feel like it's going to open a whole bunch of doors for you. It opens up your mindset. It opens up your um, kind of field of vision to different possibilities, to different things that you are able to do, different ways you can connect with people and different levels and different philosophies and things like that. And it's just going to um, kind of broaden your perspective and allow for just a whole mindset expansion. Um, and I feel like, uh, you know, vulnerability and sensuality and sexuality are great tools to get in touch with that. Awesome. Well, thank you, Natasha, for being on the show today. Um, thanks, everyone, for tuning in to Aces Audio. I'm your host, Chad T. Grant. And I'll see you guys on the flip side. Bye. Cheers. <laughs>